welcome independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind to Shadow Citizen. Shadow Citizen will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your hosts, Rachel L. McIntosh. I know everybody loves that screaming right there. All right, gang, we made it through another week. Thanks for joining me. Tonight, we have Cody Snodgrass. I hope I'm saying his name right. He's been making the rounds on the internet, and he's been been interviewed by a bunch of different people. And I thought I got him right away, but I noticed today when I checked up on him, he's been talking to a lot of people. Um, His claim to fame is that he claims to be former special ops and that he was approached to bomb the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. And I was fascinated by the interview he did with Jeff Rentz, Um, and I contacted him, and he contacted me back, and we talked for a while on the phone. And I wanted to share this with everybody. We've got two hours. I'd like to introduce everybody to Cody Snodgrass. Am I saying that right, Cody? Yes, you are, Rachel. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your life and talking with me and talking with our listeners. And this is really important, what you're going to tell us, because in many ways it relates to other instances in the United States, such as 9-11, maybe even Sandy Hook. Um, And it has to do with a false flag that was contrived by the government, which you are telling people that they approached you to actually do this. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, Why don't you, you'll start at the beginning because we spoke on the phone for an hour and I feel like I already caught caught up, but I know that you have something you want to say. You've got kind of a pre-planned thing because I've heard you say it three times on, on different radio stations, but I think it's important that you say from the beginning who you are, how you got here, how you got to me and tell the story, your story. Go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, what we usually do is go through a brief timeline, uh, you know, so listeners can uh, get a feel for for the information about the Murrah building. Uh, and you're right, it was a false flag op. Uh, the reasons for it, a lot of Americans uh, don't know. They haven't heard. And these kind of things are going on all around the world. Um, it's a pattern. And my friend Oli Domagard at uh, in, uh, lightonconspiracies.com, he... Uh, He's a, a well-known researcher in the in in the field, but um, as far as uh, my background goes, I I graduated from high school here in the U.S. Uh, in Dallas uh, in 1974, and um, I scored in the top one percent on the SAT test in physics going into college, and I was also the only four-year letterman there, and I was a real good athlete and everything, so I got a full tennis scholarship to college, and in 1975, in the fall, um, I was uh, approached in the physics department by one of the professors, and he said, there's a recruiter down here who wants to see you alone, and uh, it was the CIA, and uh, they told me it was because of my real high test scores in physics, and they wanted to recruit me, and I turned them down. I said I didn't want to work for the government at that time, and... Um, I had been already working uh, with some Vietnam veterans that had come back from uh, the war, and a couple of them had worked for the CIA. And uh, I started working with them 
doing small things, and they were training me at the same time. And then uh, fast forward into 1979, I uh, graduated with a, a double major in both a uh, bachelor of science degree in math and physics. Then I started working on my master of science degree in physics at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches. I got to fly the space shuttle simulator down there at NASA. Well, <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. That's yeah, uh, pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, we went on a big field trip down there and everything. But I then I worked for Chevron Oil Company. Um, that was a civilian cover. Uh, uh, and then moved up to Amoco Production Company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I was a petroleum and research geophysicist. And that was also a civilian cover. And then later in 82 through 85, during that time, we were working in the um, over in Arkansas with Bill and Hillary Clinton in CIA's covert operations. There were three of them there. One was uh, Centaur Rose, the other one was Jade Bridge, and the other one was Screw Worm. And Centaur Rose was a, it was a um, op to uh, arm the uh, Nicaraguan uh, freedom fighters, the Contras. And of course, mm-hmm. yeah, that that was the Bolin Amendment in 84 had been passed, and Congress uh, didn't want us to go down there and get militarily involved, but Ronald Reagan, the president, ordered CI director to go around and uh, and conduct an op there for that. So we can talk about all that later. But yeah, you, I was, so, so basically you had been recruited because of an SAT physics test. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a section in the SATs that had to do with physics, and they said, oh, this guy knows what he's doing, and they tried to recruit you, and you said no. And then then you kind of fell into it because it sounds like you were hanging out with the Vietnam vets, right. and they started training, the, like just off offline. They just said, hey, you want to learn how to do this? Or was this like a... A military thing that you got involved in? No, I, no, I, I went in the military, and okay. uh, that's why, as we go through this uh, later on, you'll see why I was the perfect uh, candidate to be offered mm-hmm. uh, this job at the Murrah Building. Uh, they usually do it uh, with with people that don't have any ties or connections in the black op community, because uh, the agents, case officers, they, they don't want to ha- have any political blowback in case uh, you know something sour. Yeah, up. something happens. Sure, sure. That, that's right, why so they. That- that's why they used Tim McVeigh. He was an ex-military cutout. So right, lot, right. The, the guys that I were working with were had been in the military, but then they had got to the civilian world. They had been approached by CI for so that you know they could. They had all the military training and everything, but now they were civilians, and so they did jobs like the Centaur Rose job, moving the arms and and the drugs, and uh, that way uh, there's no tie. Okay, so. You just said you were in the military. You were. No, you no, like, I, no, no. You no. were not. You were not. Uh, These people not. were. Yeah. And you, you fell in with them. How did you meet them? Oh, I, I had met. I had some friends in high school, and their older brothers were um, had come back from the war, and uh, okay. we met them through them, and then contact through contact, and we started doing little jobs for them here and there, and it just grew over the years into bigger and bigger things, and uh, trained in martial arts for twenty years. So, <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. This is awesome. All right, so all right, so you're like living the vita loca over there. All right, so you you hanging out with these people. They're training you like martial arts, and you're learning how to do all this like really sneaky stuff. And you are still going to school at the same time, or were you done with the school at that point? No, I, I had was still going through undergrad school, and then um, 
I had a full tennis scholarship to pay for that, and then uh, I had a graduate teaching assistantship. Uh, in grad school, I taught three sections of physics 101. It was about, you know, 30, 35 kids a class. Oh, my gosh. You were the professor of that? Which school is that? Which one? That was at Stephen F. Austin State University. That's in Nacogdoches, Texas, East Texas. Okay. Imagine imagine this guy being your, your physics teacher, everybody. Oh, my gosh. And how cool is that? <laughs> All right. So it's Stephen S. Austin, and you're sitting in class, and you're teaching people physics, and it's like a normal life. And then you like on the weekends, you're hooking up with these people, or well, you, you kind yeah. of fell out with those people. Are you still in with them? Yeah, when they had uh, different things they needed done, a lot of what I was doing was driving. We'd drive a, you know, drive a load, or they'd have a truck ready and tell me where to take it, and uh, I would meet a contact, and they would have a code. I wouldn't know mm-hmm. who the contact was. Uh, I wouldn't know it was in the load, and my job was to get it from point A to point B with, uh, you know, no blowback, no, uh, no distortion, and uh, it was part of the the bigger op. And then later on, as I uh, I proved myself and and got uh, you know better and better at things. Uh, they started cutting me in more on on what you need to know. But when you're running do you, a, do you get money for that though? At that point, or were you just oh, doing yeah. it because it was fun? No, no. Or, I was like, what, paid. what kind of sucked you in at that? Because you didn't want to work for the government. I was getting paid really good. That's why I did. Okay, so that's what happened. Money starts coming, and you're like, "All right, I'll drive a truck." Money, money, money. Uh huh. And we worked up to a point where I was I was making twenty thousand a month just base pay, whether mm-hmm. I didn't did anything or not. And then we'd get called for different jobs to do different things. And some sometimes we would uh, make a little extra money on the side, depending on what we were doing. You know. Wow. Wait. Now you're saying who we're who who are these we're we who's we the people we were working with. Uh huh. And you, you didn't really know them. I knew, but you did. I knew I knew some of them. Some of the contacts that I was told to meet, I never saw before in my life. Mm-hmm, I would mm-hmm. I would meet, they, for instance, if you want specifics, they would tell me to drive a truck somewhere, to, like say to a Walmart parking lot in some town, and then mm-hmm. I would open the hood and stand around like I was working on it at a certain time. I'd have to wear a blue hat. Uh, my contact, they would tell me, would be wearing a red baseball hat, and he would say a, a certain code like... Uh, walk up in the parking lot and go, are you having trouble? And I'd say, yeah, I think it's the starter. And he'd get in the truck and uh, start it, and then uh, he'd say, you know, it's working good, and I'd shut the hood and then walk away. And my job after, <laughs> my job after that was to call my principals then and, and let them know that the contact had arrived and the mm-hmm. load had been transferred. Other than that, it's a need-to-know operation. It's, uh, yeah. So it's like I think they call that a floating matrix I don't, that's, that, that's the way I heard of it before, that it's a, a floating matrix. People that just call up to do a job, you don't know anybody, you just do it and you go back to your normal job. Yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how a lot of black ops uh, work because if anything sours up, the principals or the hires up, they have plausible deniability. And uh, yeah. if you're caught, you're just a civilian criminal in whatever country you're in and there's no ties to anything, they can call the State Department, they can talk to the CIA, nobody knows anything. Do you think your connections like this helped you get those jobs at Chevron Oil? And like, was it which got you the the jobs first, or was it all interconnected? Because I have to say, the oil companies that I've had to deal with, the very the reason why I said I had to deal with, because I used to work for a defense contractor, and amazingly, I was astounded that a lot of our customers were 
oil companies. It's like, what is that? What? Why do, why do we have all these contracts with oil companies? So now that you're talking about oil companies, like, you know what? This kind of makes sense. Well, do you think? Uh, yeah. Because yeah, right. you, you get to travel around. You got the, the, the black gold, as they call it. You got the oil, and you're trading that around. But it kind of you can slip into places. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, they they liked what I was doing. Um, you know, if if like if you were working for the CIA and you're on a sanctioned op, they have what they call a knock. That's a non-official cover. That means mm-hmm. it's a non-government cover. You're an artist. You're a painter. You're a journalist or whatever. And uh, like an OCO, that's a uh, official official cover where you're. You you you're a liaison to the State Department, or you're the uh, deputy to some press secretary in an embassy in in Libya or something like that. You have an official government cover, and that way you have diplomatic immunity in that country. So if you get caught doing things in the course of the operations, a lot of times the civilian law enforcement in the area won't won't stop you. You have a diplomatic immunity, and they use that quite a bit. But we were operating in the states, and we were. Uh, we were doing CI sanctioned jobs, uh, but but they were illegal because when Reagan ordered um, CI director to um, begin those operations to arm the Nicaraguan Contras against the Sandinistas down there, um, mm-hmm. that that was an illegal domestic op. It had the president's backing, but CI was forbidden to operate domestically in the U.S. Now, after the Patriot Act was passed in September 11th, after the mm-hmm. uh, that deal. Um, then uh, they changed that law, and CI was then able to operate domestically legally. Mm-hmm. But at that time, that's why they hired a lot of black ops guys and ex-military cutouts and stuff, because the op itself was uh, illegal. Well, all right, so you started doing these ops, like when? You've, you told us you were at school, then you hung out with these Vietnam veterans, then you started, to, you know, you started your life, you graduated, became a professor, and then you started driving trucks around. You knew it was an op, but you didn't know what it was for, anything like that. They don't give you like a full, you know, notebook of why you're doing anything, I would imagine, right? Yeah, yeah, that's how black ops are. They're, yeah. they're supposed to, uh, a perfect black op, Rachel, is something that occurs in an area, and nobody knows that it goes on except for the people involved in it. And mm-hmm. and that doesn't always work that way, and there's blowback or mistakes or and so forth, but the idea is to minimize blowback, keep everything secret, no ties, no SIGINT, that's signal intelligence, no no photon, photographic intelligence, um, there's no trace, and then the op goes, and, and I was, in, in 1980, I was a petroleum geophysicist, I had about 19 people working under me, and we had, were in charge of projects like the Boat for Sea Project in Alaska, and and offshore China, and Saudi Arabia, and uh, Louisiana, Louisiana, Louisiana <laughs> yeah. Gulf Coast uh, offshore. So right. this was a perfect civilian front um, for me to conduct these operations. Mm-hmm. And then, what year was it, or when? When did the change occur in you? Were you just like, "Whoa, this is my life. This is what I'm doing." And were you proud of it, or you, or was it just? How, tell me how you felt, because this is amazing to me that somebody makes this transformation who says, "I don't want to work for the government." And next thing you know, you're working for the government, <laughs> hardcore. How did how did that feel to make that transition? Well, you know, when you take a job from someone and they want you to do a point specific mission, um, you don't necessarily care 
who they're working for. I mean, they're your principal, and a lot of times things are need to know, and you don't know, you know, if they are working for the CI or they're working for an oil company or they're working for whoever. Um, you take the job and you complete it, and then you get paid. And mm-hmm. and that you you try to maintain a need to know uh, deal. You don't want to know too much because if you're caught or captured or tortured, then you can't give up. Uh, it's stuff that you don't know, and it gives the other stop time to uh, clean clean up or do whatever they need to do. Right, but at this point, you were still just in the United States, correct? Right. Okay, so. Do you think? Did you think you were going to get tortured here? Well, I don't know. You never know. When they showed me the content of some of the loads, uh, after that, I started really thinking about it. You know, at first, yeah. ignorance is bliss. But then I realized we were moving some serious military equipment. Uh, mm-hmm. They were stealing it out of the armories, and they were cooling it off at safe houses, and then they were taking it over to the airport in Mena, where it was flown by uh, pilots like Barry Seal. He was a C one twenty three. Plane, he called it the Fat Lady. It's a military transport plane in Rich Mountain Aviation, and that went down to uh, to arm the uh, Contras. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I still want to know that. So this transformation occurred. How old were you when you said when you realized what the heck you're doing? When what, like that's got to be a moment where you're like, okay. I'm here, I'm doing this thing, here comes a $20,000 check from, well, that's the other question, where's the check coming from? Well, there's no check. We were always paid in cash. Sometimes, oh, that's nice. Sometimes that's nice. diamonds. That's nice perk. <laughs> sometimes gold, sometimes silver. Nothing right. Nothing ever hit any of the banks. We we were trained on how to launder money and wash money. And In a black op, you can't leave any trails, especially financial trails. And and there was there's not there wasn't any one point. I mean, I just started working and doing things, and as time went on, uh, the jobs you know got bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper. And then I developed a reputation where uh, people would contact me or my associates would recommend me for something. We did bodyguard jobs, we guarded safe houses, we uh, we did all kinds of things in the black op community. Okay, so there's a community of these people. Oh yeah, definitely. A lot okay. of them are ex-military, uh-huh. uh, you know, and some of them, uh, some of them were like me. They were just independents. Uh, some of them were uh, CIA assets, um, you know, and then some people were actually case officers or agents, and then they they wanted to do something on the side, you know. They they were on some kind of op they were doing, but they were going to do something on the side to make a little extra money, and so they would hire us to help them with that. But uh, we weren't connected to their main op, so. It's the black op community. There's a uh, people know people, and and um, you know get, your name gets passed around am- amongst the people when they need certain jobs done. So you can see how the CIA and the mafia got along pretty good. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> because I live in Rhode Island, and it's I, I'm just going to say it. This place has been known to have pretty heavy. Um, mafia stuff going on in the past. We have definitely had this thing here called Plunder Dome, and that was a really big thing for a while. It was that bad. Our government and everything else was totally infiltrated by the mafia. But anyhow, so you can see how the CIA and the mafia kind of were a match made in heaven. Yeah, it's, just, it's, yeah. it's not just that. It's also some of the, the bigger gangs. You know, there's, uh, there's different gangs from Mexico. There's cartel go- uh, people that, that liaison with the gangs. And so when you talk about, uh, you know, a black ops community, 
generally they deal with with operations like moving drugs or moving arms or laundering money and and it, the fingers it's like a big octopus you know the fingers mm-hmm. just go everywhere they go through the bankers some of these people are actually bankers but uh, like Ronald Rewald over in Hong Kong he was actually a CIA agent but his front was being uh in this big bank uh, and and so it liaisons through through all uh, areas of society and um, mm-hmm. that's how this big octopus of the shadow government uh, operates. I believe it. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, all right, so let's take it through. So you figured out you're working for somebody, they go, here, take a bar of gold. And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, okay, I like that. I'll take this truck somewhere. And it kind of kept bumping up. Right. And then some at some point somebody contacted you. And what that was the CIA that contacted you about the Murrah building? No, it was a, a contractor, and his name was Harold Leonard. Um, I, when I began discussing this stuff, um, right, so I always quote the 1982 Intelligence Identities Protection Act. It's U.S. Code Title 50, Sections 421 and 426. It says the disclosure of a U.S. government operative's identity is illegal only if it's done intentionally and with knowledge that the government is still actively maintaining a cover for such operatives. The reason we do that is... You may you may have heard of the guy named John Kariaku. Um, he was a CIA case officer, and in uh, January 2013, he got 30 months in federal prison because he was one of the whistleblowers of the CIA's RDI program, the Rendition Detention and Interrogation Program, uh, centered out of Gitmo down in mm-hmm. Guantanamo Bay, and he mm-hmm. was uh, talking about it and inadvertently gave a, an agent's name, and the guy was active, and that's against the law. You you can't. If anyone's active, you can't give their name out. Uh, so so I, t- helps- I take it Harold is not active. Pardon me? I take it Harold Leonard, the man that contacted Harold, yeah, you. Yeah, Harold Leonard's dead. Okay. <laughs> All right, good. That, so that's why I'm you're, saying So you're name. not going to go to jail? You're not going to get tortured or anything? So okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, so good. anyway, Harold had contacted me, and um, he we met out in a wooded area uh, up under the tree canopy, and... Uh, he had half a million dollars in a blue and, I mean, a purple and black backpack. And he said, we've got a job for you. And I said, okay, where are we going? Saudi Arabia, wherever. He said, no, this one's here in the States. And I said, okay, well, uh, what kind of job is it? And he said, it's an EOD job. That's explosives and demolition. And um, so uh, I said, okay, what's the target? And uh, he said, uh, it's a, a, a building. I said, what kind of building? And he said, it's a federal building. I said, what? He said, yeah, which, which one? He said, it's the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. And uh, at that point, that was in uh, October of 1994, and I, had, uh, I was getting at the end of my rope in this game. I had several broken bones and nerve damage and some serious injuries, and uh, I had PTSD real bad from all of it and had begun drinking, uh, you know, to cover my PTSD. And I was operationally ineffective anyway, and I think that's why they wanted to kill two birds with one stone, you know, just uh, to have a patchy for the op and then uh, get rid of me, you know, because I knew too much. And so I turned that job down, and I told Harold Leonard, I said, you guys have gone too far this time. This is our own building. These are our own people, and I won't do it. And that's the point at where I turned from being an asset to a liability. And mm-hmm. two days two days later, uh, my one of my handlers 
Um, his name was Duke Flaglier. He had done two tours in Nam, and then he was working for the CIA. Um, he called me and said, you need to leave the country. And uh, he said, you, now you know about an operation. We don't know when it's going to kick off, but uh, now you're, uh, you're a liability. And he offered me the keys to his house in Belize and um, said we'd stage out of there. And so um, after after that, um, it was about six months later that McVeigh uh, detonated that truck bomb there on April nineteenth, ninety five. And I went black. It took six. It took six months after you moved to Belize. That was that quick. Uh, well, the I was offered the job uh, in October of uh, ninety four. Ninety four, yeah. And then in April. April 19th and 95 is when the actual bombing took place. Wow. Yeah. So I, I knew about it, and so I figured they would probably kill me uh, or uh, do something worse. You know, uh, I, I, I went down to Oklahoma. We had a series of safe houses down there between Tulsa and Oklahoma City that we had used during the Centaur Rose Ops earlier in the 1980s over in Arkansas. So mm-hmm. I stayed there. Then I left the country for a while and came back. And by that time... McVeigh and Terry Nichols had been uh, charged with, uh, you know, with the bombing. Okay, so October 94, he contacts you. This is this Harold person. And then Duke Flag- Flaglier, Flaglier, he came up, yeah. Flaglier came up to you and said, look, man, you got you to gotta get out of Dodge. Go to my house in Belize. Right. April 1995, which is a few months later. You were already in Belize. Were you in Belize when this happened, or were you still floating around going to these safe houses? I was. I was up in Colorado when it happened, and then when I heard about it, um, I I immediately went black uh, because mm-hmm. I had I had knowledge. Uh, I had knowledge that the operation was going on. That made me a liability. Right. And so okay. I went I, down. I went can down. I ask and, another question now. We'll get to this too. Because uh, how do you go black? I want to know how to do that. Okay. How do you had, do that? It's called tradecraft. And, okay. Uh, in tradecraft, you have a um, series of identities. Okay. You create what's called a legend. That's, uh, you know, you have a, a fake history of what you were and what you're mm-hmm. doing and with documentation, credit cards, whatever, electric receipts, whatever you need to create the legend. But when you go black, generally you have disguises and you have fake IDs. And then you have a series of uh, transportation or drop vehicles, you know, that are not related, uh, you know, to your to your original identity. Mm-hmm. But that's all is, is your name that, yeah, is your name Cody Snodgrass? Uh, is that part of the, is that a, is that a fake ID? No. Okay. <laughs> All right, because this is, I'm just looking at this whole thing. So going back to this original thing, you were working for the petroleum. This was your cover, your your non-official cover at that point, or your official cover right. when you're working for the petroleum. Okay, now do, at that point, did they have you making the legend for yourself with fake right. history and disguises well, and stuff? Back then, look, when you're in black ops, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. See, I don't know anything about this. This is why it's so fascinating. Go ahead. Tell me everything. Yeah, it it pays to have a series of false identities or Mm -hmm. safe houses to go to Mm -hmm. or or drop vehicles uh, in case you need some ground transportation somewhere. It also pays to have disguises. 
so that if you you have to go somewhere in a public place and something happens and then later on they go around and question the witnesses you know that they don't you know you're already in disguise you have a false identity that's just the way black ops work um, right, right. that way you can move around a lot and if you're assigned to go somewhere you can go there and be one person and then move off somewhere and do something else right. the idea is that there's no records and there's no blowback there's right. no way to trace anything that happened that's what a black op is right 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 did you have i, I know it seems i'm just fascinated by this whole thing did you have a disguise that you enjoyed more than others um not really. Sometimes we had operational requirements that we were told to be a certain kind of person or right. or, or do a certain thing for, for whatever the op was because, like I said, this this went with uh, on trust a lot. Um, mm-hmm. They would they would have what they call an umbrella op where, like me, I would do one thing, and then they have two or three other people or operators doing something parallel to it all at the same time, but we wouldn't know who each other was, right. and we wouldn't know which each, what each other were doing, but the people, the principals that were running the op, they knew how to put it all together, and they had the reasons for separating it like that. Right, right, keep everybody compartmentalized. Yeah, exactly. so that you that's really right. don't know anything. You just that's go right. do your job and go on with your life. Right. Now, you had said when this Harold Leonard contacted you that you asked him, is it in another country? And you hadn't been in another country yet, had you? Well, at that time in 1994, yes, I've been in several other countries. Oh, like where? Well, I, I, I'm i going to tell you a few of them. I'm not going to okay. tell you all of them. Oh, no, no, we don't have that much time, but go ahead, yeah. Please do. Uh, I've, been in, I've been in Japan and Saudi Arabia, South America, you know, all through Central America, uh, up through Canada, over in uh, Europe, and I've been different places, yeah. Oh, so basically all over the world. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty intense. Now, this was, you were still the uh, petroleum geophysicist while you were traveling all around? No. Um, no, that, no. That was only in the early 80s when I right. needed that cover. And then after that, uh, 82 through 85, uh, I quit that. Uh, I didn't need the cover, and I just went totally into Black Ops. Uh-huh. All right, so you, so you gave up the teaching and all that other stuff. You said, "Screw this! I don't care about the the pension." Well, yeah, <laughs> you, you know when you need when you need a cover, um, you can create one or get a job or whatever you need to do for the for the to cover up the ops. But sometimes when I in the eighties, we were so busy with stuff, I didn't have time, and I didn't need the cover anyway. So you dispense with it and go on. I was making a lot of money, a lot more money than. As a geophysicist, I was only making about fifty thousand a year then, and that's nothing compared. We had some jobs in Saudi Arabia where we made fifty thousand a month. Yeah, I bet, I bet. So that this is, like I said, this is really I'm fascinated with this part. So you're you've gone black. You've got this legend. You've created the legend. You've got the fake history. You've got the disguises, and you're going around all over the world, and people through this community that you don't even know too much and they're paying you with gold and cash and this sounds very fair this is like kind of a dream lifestyle for a well, lot of people and in, in, yeah in West Africa Sierra Leone and West Ivory Coast we had a job uh, a job over there that um, 
and they pay in diamonds because that, that that's the like the currency, the blood diamonds. Mm-hmm. It's a big thing over there. So whatever country you're in or whatever op, we had an op in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, which was Saigon, just after the war. The U.S. pulled in, uh, pulled out after 75 there. And then later on, they were cleaning out uh, the countryside. They re- reunited the north and the south. They were cleaning up all the old unexploded ordnance and the mines and booby traps and all the stuff. And, and uh, there was an op there to move some of those old uh, uh, Soviet-style weapons uh you know, over to the Middle East, you know, and, and so we got paid to, to do that. But, yeah, it's just, it's uh, it's black ops. Okay, so that, though, doesn't sound sneaky, moving the old stuff. That almost sounds like a um, military defense contractor. Well, yeah. Um, the, you know, the job was they had all that old, old ordinance over there from the war, yeah. and uh, they were cleaning up the countryside and... Uh, you know, uh, arms is a big business. So, oh, that's uh, true. That's absolutely true. There's other people, you know, that wanted all that old stuff, uh, and you just hook the buyers up and, and move it. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. makes money. So, so you personally were, like, c- putting the people together, like, finding the people to buy this stuff, or were you just there digging it up? Well, no, they, they had a guy there that had been Special Forces, and he... Uh, he stayed in Vietnam, got out of the military, and um, he got the first import-export license that was ever granted by the uh, new communist government when they took over South Vietnam. And so he was in a good position to uh, be able to uh, gather stuff there and then export it through his company as a, as a front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, everything has a front. Everything... You know, is mixed in yeah, with, all these with straw legitimate, yeah, sure. and then yeah. the money. If it's big money, it's it's laundered through oil business stuff like the Saudis mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. or whatever, and it and it's all washed through the legitimate uh, above board or what we call vanilla operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right now I'm still in the vanilla land, but like I said, I want to go into the dark world there with the dark. I want to be. I want to like disappear pretty soon. I want to. I want to literally do that. Um, now. Here's my next question. Let's get back to um, the Murrah building. So Harold Leonard comes up to me. And he says, we've got this thing. And you said, is it in another country? And you, he said, no, it's here. And you had been, you said you'd already been in Japan, Saudi Arabia, Canada, all these yeah. other places. And just something in your head said, look, I can go somewhere else and blow something up, but I can't blow up a federal building here. And that's when like, the veneer that you had created started to crack. Yes. Well, no, it's just a patriotic thing. I mean, yeah. My uh, my stepdad, he was in the 25th Infantry, took his uh, basic at Fort Hood, Texas, and then he was at uh, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, at Schofield Barracks on December 7th, 41, and mm-hmm. survived the great attack there and then went to fight, fight the Battle of Guadalcanal in November, uh, you know, the late winter of 42. And I was a patriotic American. I mean, I, I, I did black ops, and I did a lot of bad things, but I drew the line at doing it here in our own country. Right, uh, right. I, I can understand that. Because yeah. anybody that's in the military, would, <laughs> that's what you do. You just go out there and you, you do what you got to do, so long as back here is safe. And that's why you're doing it, so that back here is safe. Yeah, and the military guys, they're under no obligation to... Um, 
if they get an order, you know, if it's an extrajudicial unconstitutional order, then they don't necessarily have to follow it. I mean, um, if, if you're given a job like Lieutenant Cowley at the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, you know, and you go in there and you start wasting civilians, innocent women and children, that's where the, there's a line in there. I mean, you can conduct military operations in there to weed out the enemy like the, the NVA or uh, the Viet Cong, but when you start crossing that line and wasting and killing uh, innocent civilians, uh, women and children and stuff, then, then there's a line there. And uh, it's a fine line, and the line between patriotism and treason in the black ops world is, is very, uh, very fine sometimes. Yeah, almost a gray line, sort of a yeah. gray line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, when I po- posted that I was going to have you on the show, lots of people caught, started contacting me because they heard you and they were, look, they, they, my, my listeners have my back. They're really cool, the people listening to this show. They asked if you had ever read a book by Terry Reid called Compromised, Clinton, Bush, and the CIA. I have read that book. Yeah. Because they said it sounds a lot, you sound a lot like that, like what he's talking about in that book. Well, um, and then, yeah, so, yeah, there, yeah was, there was lots of people involved in those operations. Um, I, you know, I didn't actually see all the money myself, but I was told by my higher-ups that at the height of, uh, like, that Centaur Rose-Off, they were moving approximately $100 million a month in cocaine. They were taking arms down into Central America because the Soviets were pouring arms into the uh, the uh, Sandinistas, and so we were trying to arm the Contras, and uh, they didn't want the balance of power to tip, you know, the domino theory thing and everything, mm-hmm. and uh, they were bringing the drugs back to pay for the op. So, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people involved in those operations. You know, yeah, I bet, I bet. I'm just I'm just one little guy that you know drove some trucks and uh, and and moved some loads of stuff and. I also guarded safe houses. Uh, we had a guy that was in the uh, Little Rock National Guard in the Army there. And back then, they didn't have computers, Rachel, like they do now. And, right. and they, they, it was easier to fudge the ledgers. And, um, you know, they, they stole a lot of military equipment out of there. And then there was a farm uh, that another associate had south of Little Rock. And we'd take the ordinance there and, and let it cool off a little while. Then we'd move it over to uh, the safe houses between Tulsa and Oklahoma City um, and let it sit because there'd always be an investigation, you know, after a lot of that stuff disappeared. And while they were fighting the heat on that, we'd sit there and then wait for orders. Whenever the orders come, then we would take the stuff back over to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And which year is that? Because I'm making a timeline right These here in my are like, of your life. You know, between, say, 82 to 85, roughly. Okay, so that op, that op was ongoing over years, and then the um, Jade Bridge—that was a thing where they were training the Nicaraguan pilots on how to right. fly. And they offered me a job down there in Nicaragua to train, do hand-to-hand combat, because I had a lot of martial arts. So um, they offered me a job down there to train some of those uh, those guys, and I, I didn't have time to do that. It wasn't enough money, so I stayed up here in the states. Okay, so that 1982 to 85. You were over Amco, Amico, no? Uh, I was at Amico uh, in 80, 81, and then I quit. Okay. I quit that, so 
so I could devote full time in in the uh, mid eighties to to what we were doing. Okay, okay. Because like I said, I'm taking copious notes on everything you say because it's so fascinating. All right, so now you're. I have one more question too because when people saw that you were going to be on my show, do, are you do you are you friends with my guest from last week, Field McConnell from Able Danger? No, I never met him. I never heard of him. In fact, until sometime last week when we started doing these interviews, one of the the people from some, one of the radio stations sent an email in and said, you need to talk to Phil McConnell. And I, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know. Yeah, because quite frankly, last week, I really didn't know much about Phil McConnell. Next thing you know, I find I, you and I meet up and then I start getting emails and people are sending messages and it looks like about both of you. So I didn't know if I was in some sort of email loop that was <laughs> I was like, what the heck's going on? So, okay, you don't know him. All right. Uh, thank you. Um, now, next thing. I want to still go on with this um, Murrah, Murrah building because this is really the, the crux of the biscuit. And I've just been careening on with all these questions because it's so fascinating to me. All right. So, and I probably shouldn't sound so happy about this because this is actually pretty freaky. Um, well, yeah, right. So, you know, when that building did go off, um, it killed 168 people and, and it, children. it injured, it injured about 680 more. Yeah. And, and then it damaged 324 buildings in the area, about a 16 block radius. Mm-hmm. And it burned, uh, uh, like 86 cars or so and shattered glass in 258 buildings. And it also caused, you know, after it was all said and done, a rough estimate of the damages, total damage is about $652 million. So you're right, it was a very sad, um, a very sad thing. Yeah. And I I showed the movie A Noble Lie, which is uh, a movie of documentary done by uh, Free Mind Films. I showed that twice at the library, the public library, oh, and yeah. kind of blew, blew people's minds. The reason why I showed that is because it did kind of lay the groundwork for what happened on 9-11. Right, and exactly. And the other, the other thing, that I sh- reason why I showed that, I mentioned I work for this defense contractor. Everybody, all the higher-ups at this defense contractor, literally, I don't know, the sum, it was probably maybe June or July I don't think it was August, but it was close. Maybe it was August. All the higher-ups where I had worked, they all went to the memorial for Oklahoma City, like literally like a month or two before 9-11 happened. And I kind of always felt like, why did they send them all? Like it was out of nowhere. Like, oh, let's all just go to this memorial. And that just seems so odd to me that they were trying to – prep people for the mindset, like, oh, remember when this happened? Like how, you know, that sort of, hmm. Anyhow, so, yeah, it was pretty tough because, so I showed that film, A Noble Eye, which if anybody hasn't seen it, you really should see it. It used to be free on the internet or Alex Jones was running it or something, but I think they got into some sort of financial battle about the thing and, Free Minds film, you can buy it and you could rent it. I think it's online. Yeah, the filmmaker it's, for that is Chris Chris Emery, if I'm saying his name right. Chris yeah, Emery. that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. 
I think people should look at that. That's a pretty decent overview. of. And then from your perspective, though, like you said, you're in this floating matrix situation. You really didn't you really didn't get to know why they were doing this. They just come in to talk to you because they knew you were trustworthy and also because you thought you were kind of a little long in the tooth and they sort of wanted to use you as a patsy. Well, yeah, you know, April, when, I mean, um, Rachel, when you, uh, when you take, when you're first approached generally in a black ops job, um, they will first uh, ask you if you want to do it uh, and they, they don't give you a lot of the operational parameters of the job. And once you accept it and say, yes, I'm willing to uh, take on this job, then later they provide the intelligence about why, what, who, or where. Um, but if you turn it down that way, um, that way you're not that much of a liability because you really didn't know anything in the first place. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So as a general procedural rule with a black op, they will they will approach you and they'll uh, they'll say, are you interested in this or that? And then if you uh, answer in the affirmative, then they'll say, okay, well, here's the details. Here's the timeline. We need it done this way. We need it done that way, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So where were you on that, like, that list? Were you just at the initial contact, or did they start telling you about how it was going to go down? No, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I was approached by Harold Leonard. Right. Uh, and he, he said, it's a half million now, half million jobs done. And I turned it down. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was on my way out and I eventually retired in March of 1995. Uh, that was one month before the murder building blew up. I didn't know when it was going to blow up. I just mm-hmm. know there was a job and that I turned it down. It just okay, so, so happened that I retired one month before it actually happened. All right. Retired from the black world there the right. black ops world right. okay so how does that work do you like put the call out to everybody or you just put up a, a flag in your front yard no, and I, no longer working when, or how does that work yeah 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 when uh, i turned that job down i tur- i went from an asset to a liability and then i contacted some of my principals and higher ups different people i'd worked for over the years and and told them that i was quitting because i was not operationally effective anymore Okay, I, I got so nerve, you made the call. You I had call. nerve nerve damage down my legs, and ner- I've got nerve damage in my arms and fractured vertebrae and broken ribs and head injuries and uh, all kinds of things that happened over over the you know the last twenty years. So, mm-hmm. and all that was all in the line of this black ops stuff, or was this? Yeah, and you know we had bodyguard jobs. Uh, right. One of them we talk about in in the book is. Uh, was uh, back in 88 with Barry Sadler. Um, he was shot September 8th of 1988 down in Guatemala City, and he had been with the 20th uh, Special Forces uh, group uh, back in 63. He took his training, then he went to Vietnam, and um, he got injured in Pleiku, and uh, while he was recovering at the Subic Bay Medical Facility, he wrote that famous song, uh, The Battle of the Green Beret, and for the older older crowd back in 1965, that was uh, that was the number one hit single in in the country back then, and mm-hmm. so he had been doing arms deals down there and uh, uh, had a CIA assassin that, that shot him. He he shot him in the back of the head two weeks before I was deployed to go down there, and um, but I had bodyguard jobs like that and different ones uh, throughout throughout the time. So all that story's in the book, you know. Okay. Yeah. Well, we haven't mentioned the book on this show. 
You, okay. You, so you're, you're you're doing a book. All yeah, right, yeah. Now you said you say we talk about in the book. Here's that we again. It, who's we? You and. Well, when I say we, I talk about you know I'm talking about me and and my guardian angel. Uh, oh. Because I died, I died twice in ops, and they had mm-hmm. to shock me back. Uh, my heart stopped and flatlined twice. And uh, when I died, I had a near-death experience and floated over myself in the hospital. And uh, I, I have a guardian angel that I met there. Um, she saved my life on a number of occasions. She's the only reason I'm alive now. Uh, like one of my associates, he on his first tour in Vietnam, um, the VC were throwing up a satchel charge. They were going along a trail in a thick jungle, and uh, he he said he heard a woman's voice in his head and felt hands like pushing him down. And the voice said, "Get down, get down now!" And so he fell face first on the ground, and then they they threw up that satchel charge and uh, killed uh, a lot of the guys in his platoon. But you know, he says his guardian angel saved his life, and uh, yeah. I know exact. I've got several soldiers that were from Iraq and Afghanistan and Nam and different places uh, that have had similar things. They had a, a a visit or some kind of a spiritual epiphany where they were warned ahead of time. Some of them had dreams or some. They have a dream ahead of time, and then they know not to be somewhere, and that those okay. things save their lives. So that's what happened to me. So when I say we, that's what I'm talking about. Ah, great, great, great. All right, in this book that we, the guardian angel and you, wrote together. Um, yeah, it's called it's called Choosing the Light, Dark Secrets of the Oklahoma City Bombing. And that, that bombing job, when they offered it to me and I decided that I was going to quit and not do that anymore, that's why I titled it that, because that's the point at where I, I chose the light and I chose to do good. Um, I didn't want to hurt people or do bad things anymore. And the money didn't didn't matter to me. Uh, there's a point to where your soul gets crushed, and you see so much darkness and ugliness that, um, you know, I was drinking real heavily. I have severe PTSD, and I'm 100% totally and permanently disabled now is what my medical files say. So I've been in a lot of rough stuff, and uh, I survived, uh, you know, barely survived. Uh, so... That's when I say we, and I wrote that book because it, I decided one day that if I ever made it through all this stuff, I would I would come clean and and tell the truth. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did, and I'm glad you're on my show to announce this. This is I, I want to talk more about the guardian angels, okay. especially when we come after the break. The break's going to be in about four or five minutes. Um, now, you that was the moment. That was the moment that you you said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And that's what I want to talk about. Um, okay. So that was October 94. Harold Leonard came and talked to you. And then April 95 is when the bombing happened in Oklahoma City. And we can also talk about, because I've heard you talk about some of the reasons why that building got blown up. Yeah, that, um, that's some amazing stuff that a lot of yeah. people don't know. The mainstream media... You know, they put the big kibosh on all that, and they, they put out the standard lies and propaganda, but the real reasons why they conducted that op are, are uh, pretty amazing to most people. Yeah. Um, one of them had to do with, one of the reasons I heard you say, had to do with uh, the exposure that the people in the first Iraq war to radiation, right. they were having the, um, you know, desert storm kind of 
not post-traumatic yeah. stress, but like it, it was written off as post-traumatic well, stress, yeah. but it was physical problems. Yeah, I'd like to go through the timeline on that, but we don't have time before the break, but I can like tease it a little bit and just give yeah, you... Yeah, tease it. Go ahead. Tease there, it. Go ahead. Yeah, there was... Um, the the main reasons that building were taken down uh, were had to do with record records storage, and um, a lot of the records from the operations in the early and uh, mid eighties over in Arkansas, mm-hmm. when Bill and, and Hillary were there, she was running in the Rose Law Firm, and, and Bill Clinton was the governor. Um, they were running front for the the big CIA op there, uh, the, the three ops that we talked about earlier and yeah. and that those ops have been going on for a number of years so domestic law enforcement got involved and there's whole big troves of files from the ABI that's the Arkansas Bureau of Investigation the state police uh DEA uh IRS um the, all these these files that had been accumulated investigations going on about what was going on there had been stored at the Little Rock uh FBI field office and mm-hmm. just prior to the Murrow building they uh, detonating. They were moved over there, and they had a lot to do with the Whitewater investigation. That Congress had started that um, back in 1994. Um, that was July 26th of 1994. The Whitewater investigation began in Congress, and they were going to subpoena a lot of those records. And then later on, you know, when Bill Clinton's um, impeachment uh, came up. Those records could have played a key part in that, and they all disappeared when the murder building went. But the biggest thing has to do with the Gulf War Syndrome records of approximately 480,000 veterans that were stored there. And we mm-hmm. can go into the timeline of what happened and, and why it was so important that those records be destroyed. Yeah. We got like one minute till we come into this break. But that's that's pretty amazing to me because I'm in Generation X, which is... Gulf War, the first Gulf War, was basically my generation's war. There was the trading cards. I remember they had trading cards for the Gulf War. Right. Um, it was my first husband. He was there. And oh. his friend, one of his best friends, he and his best friend were there. They were Marines. And they came back and complained of Gulf War syndrome. And his friend um, complained that when he ejaculated, it burned. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh God, this is—you guys are just being crazy," you know. And no. I didn't believe it. But yeah, what we'll know, do what? on the other side. Of the this, break. Go ahead. Yeah, after this break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this Gulf War syndrome. We're going to yeah. talk about books yeah, we'll using go. light, and we'll yep. talk more about the Murrah Building and everything. This is going to be great. Everybody, hang on till after the break. Come on back. Okay, we're back in hour two of Shadow Citizen. We're here tonight with uh, Cody Snodgrass, and he's a 20-year veteran of black operations here in the United States, or black ops, as they call them. And he, his claim to fame is that he has come forth and said that he was approached to bomb the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City. And last hour, we talked pretty much at length about how he kind of morphed into being just really good at physics, getting approached by the CIA. He said he didn't want to work for the government. He said he didn't want to work for them. And then somehow, some way, he fell in with people, some ex-Vietnam, no, Vietnam vets, 
were working for the government in kind of black operations. And then, meanwhile, he went on to complete school. He got his math and physics degree, and uh, he started working at Chevron, Amico. He was a geophysicist. And while all that was going on, he was working undercover. And we talked about that quite a bit in the first hour. So if you missed that, listen to the replay. This is going to be on Vimeo, SoundCloud, BitChute, iTunes, YouTube. I'll be on the archive sections at American Freedom Radio and over at shadowcitizen.online. Um, so it's, I can't wait to hear this myself, to hear it replayed. We're going to talk to Cody. Cody, you're still here with us, right? Yes, we're here. How's my signal? Is it good? All right. You sound great. You sound great. Okay. I'm so glad. Okay. Now, in this hour, we were going to pick up where we left off right before the break, talking about the Gulf War Syndrome stuff. And like I said, this touches me because this is my generation. This is our war. And um, this is when people started realizing later on, not while we were in the middle of the war, but maybe this next iteration of it, the most current Gulf War, that something maybe wasn't eh, so great about this Iraq thing. So let's go back to the first Gulf War and what it has to do with the Murrah building. Right, yeah, and this is really important. We're going to go through just a quick, basic little history. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but Saddam Hussein was on the CIA payroll as, and when he was head of the Ba'ath Party there, and they, uh, he, he came to power in Iraq. And then, as you probably recall, there was the Iraq-Iran War. And um, during that time, you know, Iran's a lot bigger country, and they had approximately a 10-to-1 infantry advantage. Uh, and so Donald Rumsfeld was Secretary of the St uh, State back then, and he had been, um, you know, over there helping him with satellite intel and, and different things because Saddam was our ally at that point. And then um, to keep the balance of power between those two countries in case Iraq was overrun um, in the Reagan administration, they uh, covertly uh, armed him. Uh, and that's part of the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, but anyway, to, to make a long story short, the two basic ways they armed him was um, first with the Ames strain of anthrax. It was made at Fort Detrick, Maryland. It was a weaponized grade of anthrax. It had a uh, smaller spore size and an altered protein code on the outside to make it more readily absorbable. What they did to weaponize it was increase its infectious rate. And so they gave him this stuff covertly, and the second thing they gave him was uh, copies of the uh, Hawkeye 123C cluster bombs. Uh, they were one of the most efficient types of ordnance uh, for air-to-ground infantry engagements. And uh, so we... Um, stole the plans, basically, and took them down to uh, um, Argentina, and they had a front guy build them down there, and they had to get zirconium. That's one of the elements that makes all that work, and it's on the restricted export list here in America, so they forged up the you know, the uh, agricultural reports and blended it all in and, and got him the zirconium, and so they, they made those and sent them through Africa over to Saddam. So here he was sitting with some of our ordnance uh, covertly. The American people didn't know it, and... Um, then later on, after the war was over, um, Saddam invaded Kuwait. And when that happened, it made the Saudis real nervous, and they started putting pressure on our government. And so um, the plan was cooked up, you know, to go throw Saddam out. He was a former asset, 
and now he turned liability. And uh, just like me, just like a lot of people uh, that fall out of favor. And so what happened was there was a six-month strain, a six-month course of anthrax injections for our military. And they each got one shot a month over six months to help build up the immunity. It was a very virulent strain. And so they didn't have time, uh, Rachel. Uh, they, the timeline was to go over there by January of 91, and um, they couldn't wait around six months while everyone got their anthrax vaccine. So what they did was they created a new vaccine. And um, it was one shot in one month. But to, to make it boost it up and, and shorten the time, they used a new adjunct called squalene. And uh, as you probably know, in, in our flu vaccines, they had therosol, which I think was the mercury-based stuff, and then aluminum. These were adjuncts, which are autoimmune boosters in the, in the human body. So squalene had never been used too, too much. Uh, and so they, they put it in the vaccines, and they waived FDA testing because they were in a hurry. So they gave it to all of our troops, and in the book I have the story and the lot numbers. The first group that got it was Dover Air Force Base, the pilots and stuff, and and gradually uh, most everybody that went over there got it. Um, and this caused all kinds of problems, uh, which would later be caused called uh, you know the Gulf War Syndrome. But there was a lot of autoimmune uh, problems, uh, you know, nausea, shaking, dizziness, vomiting, um, long-term neurological degradation, and so forth. And so. Uh, while our guys were fighting over there, a second thing happened. In January 91, when that war kicked off, um, that was the first war that the U.S. military had used uh, depleted uranium weapons. Mm -hmm. And you re recall the Vietnam veterans, that was the first war over there that had used dioxin as a defoliant um, from DuPont Chemical. And uh, that uh, turned out to have really long-term effects. That was in Operation Ranch Hand when they started spraying that, and I think 69 to 71 is when that that uh, op was going on. But you fast forward into Iraq now, and they'd all gotten their anthrax shots, and a lot of them were getting sick, and then they got over there, and they were breathing all the oil well fires Saddam had set. There was smoke and sand and crap everywhere. Um, also, the depleted uranium was being used, and the, the two primary... Uh, Uses of that were in the A-10 Warthogs. Uh, they were the jets, the tank buster jets. They had 30-millimeter chain guns on them with the DU rounds. And I know some pilots here uh, that, that were over there. Uh, they're working for CIA now in, in the Space Command but uh, at Schreiber Air Force Base. But they, they used that ordinance from the air. And then on the ground, tank commanders like Timothy McVeigh, he was a, a tank commander, uh, M1A1 Abrams tank commander. He won a bronze star there for confirmed kills. But they used those those rounds, and they had about a nine-inch rod of depleted uranium in the Sabat rounds, a real high kinetic uh, velocity, about 5,200 feet per second. And they had enough kinetic energy, Rachel, to uh, Saddam's primary tank was a T-54 Soviet tank, and uh, it would hit that turret and weighed approximately 11 tons. And when these things hit the turret, it had so much energy, it would spin it up like a tumbleweed. And what was happening was these big fireballs were being created, and there were new elements being formed. Like I said, it's the first time they ever used this stuff. And mm -hmm. some of it was like uranium oxide, uranium dioxide, and the particulate size, Rachel, was down to four microns. And our mop gear, uh, 
uh, you know, our NBC and our gas mask for our troops only went down to 10 microns. So what was happening was this brand-new ordinance was being used. It was creating these toxins. And then our guys would walk through the sand and all the stuff being stirred up and breathe it through their filters, but the filters weren't stopping it. Mm-hmm. And so these very tiny particles were going in to our troops, and generally uh, radiation, when it accumulates in the human body, accumulates in the uh, thyroids and then down in the testicles if you're a male or the ovaries, you know, if you're a woman, the reproductive. And so what was happening, our guys were coming back, or, and, and girls too, or women, um, they were all coming back, and they had this anthrax thing, the shots were making them sick, and then this depleted uranium was coming. And when they, the soldiers got home and made love to their wives, there was actually toxins being transmitted in the semen. That's why you said, you know, they, they were burning when they ejaculated yeah. because the stuff was in their body. And, see, nobody knew it back then because this was just the first time it had been used. And so then it was being transferred into the women and from the women into the children and from the children. And God knows how many generations it was going to go on, and the Pentagon had on its hands a medical fiasco. I mean, you're looking at multi-generational medical bills. And so Chris Shays was a Republican senator from Connecticut, and he was on an armed services committee. And by 1994, just before the Murrah building blew up, um, all these Gulf War Syndrome guys were going sick. They were going to the VA. Uh, there was medical problems everywhere. It was turning into a big mess, just like the Vietnam vets when Agent Orange starts showing up. Mm-hmm. And so the Pentagon had to cover this up somehow. Uh, and so Chris Shays ordered the FBI to go around and gather the records, Rachel, of all these sick uh, Gulf War veterans, and they were going to put them together into a medical culpability hearing. And they knew our vets were sick. They didn't quite understand what all was going on. The Pentagon was trying to cover it all up. And Chris Shays says, you know, we're going to get you guys some money. Well, all those medical records were stored at the Alfred P. Murrah building. And just and then when it blew up, those medical records uh, disappeared. Uh, but not all the bombs went off in the Murrah building. There were three of them. One of them detonated, two of them didn't. And there was eyewitnesses of teams uh, taking the files out. They knew right where they were. And when the building didn't detonate the way it was supposed to, um, they went in there and had to take care of those records another way. But we had someone ask us, well, how do you know those records are there? I didn't see them myself, of course. But uh, later on, in September 19th of 1996, they had congressional hearings on Gulf War Syndrome. And the DOD admitted, and I've got a, a copy of this in the appendix of the book, Department of Defense at those congressional hearings admitted that over 400,000 Gulf War Syndrome records had, quote, disappeared. So when the medical records were lost, they couldn't come up with payments, uh, you know, based on the records. And so the Pentagon was conveniently off the hook in hundreds of billions, maybe even trillions of long-term intergenerational uh, medical problems. Uh, Uranium-238 has a half-life of about four and a half million years. And they didn't know how, how this would be transferred from you know, father to mother, mother to son, right. son to son, on down. So that's one of the main reasons they uh, they conducted that off. Oh, brother. All right. Well, this Chris Hayes guy, Shays guy, 
he was um, a congressman from Connecticut. And, yeah, yeah, I think he's a Republican. Right. Yeah, he was Republican. He was the only Republican congressman in New England at that oh. time. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> and um, just so everybody knows, um, he had a really hard time in 2009, because I'm from this area, I've heard about this. He worked pretty closely with my congressman, who was the senior congressman in Connecticut at that time, who's also Sam the congressman in my my book that that's listening to this knows that I have a series of books called Security Through Absurdity, which is a fictionalized version of what I lived through going living it through that through that defense contractor and through nine eleven and everything else. So this I'm familiar with Chris Shays because he was familiar and there's we I was in the um Chris Shays is over in the Bridgeport area of Connecticut. I was over in the New London, New Haven area oh, okay. of Connecticut. Yeah. Um so he had a hard time because I'm not to laugh, but in 2009, he somebody stole a lot of money from his uh, campaign, and the legal bills were way more than the. I think it was legal fees were over three hundred thousand dollars, and I think his campaign somebody snagged over. I'm not even sure if they came out what the total was, but. The rest of his career was like kind of chasing money all the time, all the time. Yeah. So just just because you mentioned his name and I know who this person is, but um, and yeah, he kind of he was very very pro all of the Iraq adventures all the way. Yeah, he he was at that time back in '96 during those hearings in '94. Um, and, you know, it had been about three years after the Gulf War was over in '91. And the symptoms, you know, are slow to develop with this low-level radiation. It's just like Agent Orange. The, the symptoms are slow, depending upon your exposure rate. Uh, and, and then some of them, if it's real low-level exposure, um, it doesn't show up. You know, it sits dormant in the liver and the pancreas and stuff, and it doesn't show up for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And then it manifests in cancers and all kinds of things. But um, three years was, was enough time for the anthrax stuff to show up. And then the, just the beginnings of this radiation poisoning that, that everyone was bringing back. And they didn't know it. They put on their mop gear, believing that they were being protected. And uh, the whole time, uh, they were being protected by some things, but not from this, this low-level radiation. Yeah, and then they got the anthrax shots. They changed that up, the anthrax shots, later yes. for, the second, for the second Gulf War, um, because my, the next guy I got involved with... Um, he was there in the second war, and he had to get – they went to give him the anthrax shots, and they told him, oh, you, you're you immune to this. You're you're immune to anthrax. We don't have to give these to you, which we thought – every thought, that's just strange. That is Why? strange. Yeah. That is a, so I, to this day, I'm like, what the heck was that all about? But he didn't have to take the shot, but he had to take all these other shots, and he's like he was so sick from it for many, many days. Yeah, so yeah, those – yeah, they just they just pump you up. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a long term effects though that that started showing up years later. Um, I, I I know several veterans that you know their hands shake. Um, they have uh, autoimmune. They have nervous problems. Uh, uh, trouble sleeping. Depression. 
a wide variety of things that are not related to the drugs of viagism uh like prozac or any of that it's just uh it's just the 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 long term effects of 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 all this these toxins yeah and the kick in the pants part is that that second iraq war the guy i'm talking about he was a contractor so you couldn't go to the va exactly <laughs> and see, so, I know guys that were in, in in Benghazi at the embassy that night. All that, all that stuff happened. We tell that story on some of those stations. Uh, there's so much here. It's it's like we said before. It's like a big octopus with all these tentacles going off into all these different branches. The pharmaceutical, like Bioport, they got the first contracts to do this cleaning vaccine. It, it branches off into the, the pharmaceuticals, the banks, the weapons manufacturers. You know, it just. It's a big octopus of shadow government um, affairs. Yeah. Um, this is completely almost off topic, but how, from your perspective, how, can this ever be stopped, any of the shadow government stuff? Um, yeah, there's a possibility, but, you know, it's like a big snowball. You yeah. know, individual presidents here in America come and go. Uh, but the shadow government remains. Mm-hmm. Um, and after 1947, when Alan Doss was uh, director of the uh, OSS, Office of Strategic Services, that's the predecessor of the CIA, after the nuclear weapons were detonated in August 6th and 9th in uh, 45 in Japan, um, mm-hmm. that really changed the whole world. And that, that, that type of power, uh, Rachel, that, that immense power... I think it really pushed the deep state and the secrecy even harder. And then we got in the space race with the Russians and Sputnik and all that. And uh, then all the new technologies with computers and encryptions and weapon systems, missile telemetry, submarines, everything just just morphed like Eisenhower warned us, you know, in that that famous speech he made about the military-industrial complex. All this technology and everything pushed the deep state and fueled it. And, and the way to win and maintain power was to go secret and to have black ops and, and to do all of these things like mind control and MKUltra, um, you know, the Stargate program, the remote viewing things. And, and so it, to answer your question, I, I don't know where all this is going to lead, but um, one thing I do know is that if we don't have some light and some transparency, and some truth that um, we will fall completely into a, a shadow government. It'll be like an Orwellian nightmare where we all get microchips and 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 uh, there's very little freedom. Um, so we have to have some kind of light to stop this. It's it's like a spiritual war between light and dark, and okay. the dark is is the shadow. You know, the secretive, the deception. And, you know, Kennedy assassination and all the 9-11 and, and uh, all of it. Uh, if we don't stand up for the light and, and, and demand truth, you know, President Kennedy, uh, Rachel, said that, that secrecy repugnant to a free society. That's you know, right. The very word uh, secrecy. And so that, your, your answer is, I don't know. I think we're at this right now. Um, you know, Trump's got all those indictments they're doing. He said he was going to drain the swamp and all of that. I don't know if he's going to be able to. He's just one man. He's got a good team with him. But the corruption, like you said, is so endemic. It's so systemic 
Um, I saw it from the inside, um, and it's horrible. I mean, it's based on greed, human greed. How do you stop that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so one, if one, one person, the way to the way to the way to, I guess per, what you said, the, the showing the light. So shows like mine where people are just talking about stuff. I've got to be well, helpful. Yeah, one guy we were doing a John B. Wells interview, Caravan to Midnight. That's a great show. It's got a lot of good, uh, good stuff in it. And John asked me. He said, "Well, you know, what can you do? What can we do against this? Because I mean, it's almost overwhelming." Um, and and I said, "Well, from an individual viewpoint, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, where you work, how much money you make. Uh, you know, you can be a burger cook or a banker, a multi-million dollar offshore banker, an investment banker." What we have to do, each of us, is to begin inside our own hearts and, and choose the light, to, to pick, you know, truth and, and integrity and honesty and, and try to try at least to manifest that because when you open your heart to that light, it brings in that higher creative uh, forces, the higher uh, spiritual forces of light, and we can manifest those on the earth. If ten people do it, nobody cares. You know, if a million people do it, it starts to make a difference. And if 10 million or 20 million people start uh, doing that, then it, it will change the world. But um, we we have to not be crippled by fear. Like me, mm-hmm. I, I was afraid. I kept quiet for 20-something years, 22 years about this Oklahoma City thing. Um, I didn't want to talk when Bill Clinton was president or Hillary Clinton was president because I know a lot of inflammatory things about them, uh, things they're trying to hide from the American people. And so when they got out of power and she was not Secretary of State, now it's the time is right for us to, you know, pull up all this shadow stuff, get it out in the open, and I hope they get prosecuted because I think they're criminals. It is pretty amazing that they haven't, that a lot of these people are still walking around like normal people. I'm, I swear to God, if it was just you or me or anybody normal, We'd be in jail. It'd be all over. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. And Like that's a long thing. time ago, but this keeps dragging. They keep dragging this out, and it turns into this big drama, and it goes on and on and on, almost like it's entertainment for people to watch. Yeah, and, and you ask, you know, the Justice Department is skewed. You know, regular people like us, we get tickets for no seatbelt or something like that. Yeah. And the Clintons, <laughs> they can get away with all this big stuff, and nobody says anything. We have to demand that our justice system you know, be more fair, uh, there's always corruption in government. I mean, it right. doesn't matter what country you're in, but um, our our last few decades here since uh, John Kennedy got shot, I was in Dallas, by the way, when that happened. Um, Get out. Yeah. I really? Was, oh, yeah, I can tell you that story here if you want later. But um, anyway, um, we, we John asked us what we could do, and the first thing you can do is hold the light for yourself and manifest that on the earth. And uh, if enough people can do that uh, and get over the greed and all that other stuff, um, then we'll begin to make a difference. But we have to change human consciousness fundamentally. You can uh, make all these systems come from the outside, and um, then, like like Trump, he can drain the swamp now and get rid of a bunch of corrupt Democrats or corrupt Republicans or whatever. And if you don't change the system they operate in, the fundamental system itself, in 10 or 20 years, the corruption will spring back up. Heck, probably the next voting cycle. Oh, oh yeah, it might not even take that long. But uh, So it's a big problem, 
I don't pretend to have all the answers to it. No, I wouldn't. But I think, I think that if each of us can can begin, you know, like I did, I, I stepped out of the black world, and I tried to, uh, we run a healing center now, and I do things of the light, and we work on veterans for free. We never charge money. I have severe PTSD, so I'm in a good position to help them with theirs. We try to get them off the Prozac and all the SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs, the VA gives them, and, and all of that, and get them off the, the bottle and alcohol and uh, help them readapt to society. So, you know, I just, in my world, I try to, I went from the dark to the light, and uh, I try to do good now and try to help people and, and uh, speak the truth when I can. And if, if enough people do that, you know, in mass, our world will change. But until that point, I, I don't know, Rachel, how this is going to turn out. All I know is we got to try. Yeah. It's our children. Yeah. It's our children and our grandchildren. You know, my life's basically over. I'm 61, and I'm all disabled and beat up and stuff. But um, it's the young people. What kind of world are we going to go to, uh, hand down to them? Well, all I know is that, well, I've got 11-year-olds, or excuse me, 12-year-olds, and um, I'm I've, I went to art school in Boston, so you could say my background is, people would say, oh, you're liberal. Well, now I'm, how old am I now? I'm not going to say, but I'm old enough now to know <laughs> that, that what we're showing the kids, and I threw my television out while I was working for that defense contractor. I said, I, this stuff on TV, it's just, it's, it's all made up. It's trying to get people to buy stuff and especially to get stock prices to go up and down. So at that point, I threw out the television. My children have never had a television in this house. However, YouTube, YouTube now, I watched it the other day with them. The stuff that they're showing the kids as kid-friendly is disturbing. And on top of that, I homeschooled my kids until sixth grade. They went into sixth grade to public school, and I'm astounded by the level of the base level of things that kids in America are, that's just normal for kids, these, these entertainment things, the education things. And when you said it, it's up to the kids, I'm like, good God, they're really, they've really kicked it down a couple notches. Yeah, it's, it's a uh, concerted, deliberate program to dumb down uh, the children so that they're easier to control. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just like Florida ain't in the water. That was first cooked up uh, uh, with the Nazis over there at, at those camps, uh, Auschwitz and stuff, Dachau and all of them, where they fluoridated the water and it made the prisoners docile. And yeah. uh, they wanted them to work and, and be smart enough to do menial jobs but not smart enough to escape. And it's a similar kind of thing. Um, uh, our whole education system has been um, deliberately molded by the New World Order elite uh, to help create a, a nation of easily controllable, um, basically, slaves. Um, that may be too strong a word. But, no, it's um, right. You're right. You're absolutely right. I agree with you, and it makes me, it makes me sad. Um, yeah, and, and, and so th then when they have a new war coming up, you know, like Vietnam or uh, Iraq or whatever it is, um, then the guys can go over there and they'll get their anthrax shots and stuff and not know what's happening to them. They won't question anything. Then when they get sick later on, after they've been used like Kleenexes by the Pentagon, and they they go, oh, uh, wow, something's wrong. You know, what happened? 
But um, they teach us not to question. They teach us to accept authority. And the whole education system, in my opinion, is uh, is in a, in a really bad way. Mm-hmm. I know I used to teach, you know, college freshmen. I had three classes. That's right. You told us that in the first hour. You were a professor. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I, I saw the kind of quality of people. This was, you know, back in the uh, early 80s, the late 70s. I saw the, the stuff coming out of the education system then, but now you fast forward now to like your kids in the year 2010 on up, you know, that it's radically different. It's a lot worse than it was back then. Yeah. And then, but the other thing is you're thinking to yourself, what type of work are they going to get into? Because first off, college is so expensive if you're going to send them to college. Second off, the robots are coming up right now. Everything's kind of automated. And um, I really feel like office workers right now are the new uh, factory class of worker. Like you're sitting in an office, not moving, typing all day long, looking at a screen. Um, I, uh, I'm, I don't know. And then you see all these businesses closing down. I have to say, in my generation, Generation X... I know so many men that are not working. It's ridiculous. And they're middle-aged. They're middle-aged men, and they're not working. Or they're working two or three jobs. Yeah, and they're, they're, men, they're menial jobs. It's like up around here. Uh, Denver, Colorado is about 100-and-something miles from here. I live way out in the mountains out here. But um, there's Colorado Springs. That has Fort Carson, Peterson Field Air Force Base, Shriver Space Command, NORAD, uh, all of it, uh, Air Force Academy. It's a big military thing. So they have a, big, a stable economy with checks and stuff there. But up in Denver, there's jobs, but they're not really good jobs. You know, they're right. lower paying. Uh, and a lot of people that I know around here, everybody's broke. Most of the guys here are retired veterans and, and on Social Security and stuff. And uh, the economy here is, is slow in the rural areas. And uh, mm-hmm. there's no good jobs. Um, this whole thing, America has, has been sliding downhill after World War II you know, my uncle was at the Battle of Bulge. My stepdad was at Pearl Harbor. And um, after that time, we, we were at a peak in power of our empire. But it's just slowly been kind of sliding down. And then the shadow government and all this secret stuff has been going up. And so mm-hmm. it, it's almost like a cancer that's feeding on the body and soul of our nation. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad. I hope Trump can make a difference. But he's only one man. Um, th- this problem deals with the international drug trade, the international arms trade, and it's very deep, and the tentacles go all around the world. Like the, the heroin, it's a record crop of opium over in Afghanistan right now. Yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're dealing with, on, on top of this horrific education system and lack of jobs, we've got an opium, pro- not an opium problem, we've got a heroin problem, and then, of course, that's mixed up with that fentanyl stuff. Yeah. Um, so people are just dying, which I think is part of the program that they have for us. Like, just kill yourself off. Why don't you? Yeah. And then there's, you know, the, the worldwide, uh, the worldwide arms business. And behind all of this, Rachel, is, you know, the international bankers, um, that they're, you know, bankers, what we tell people is they don't care about a conflict, you know, like between France and England or between Saudis and uh, Iran or something. They don't care about the conflict. 
What they care about is the debt that the conflict mm-hmm. produces. So they don't care about ideologies, you know, Republican, Democrat, um, socialism, communism, capitalism. They don't care about any of that. Um, they loan money to both sides, and then they fight wars, okay? And then there's a winner to the war. They really don't care who wins. Because then they get to loan then they get to loan money back to both sides to rebuild after the war. Right, right. So the whole thing is a money maker for them. And they love war and they love chaos and they love to keep us in fear because when we're in fear we're disempowered and easily controllable. It cripples your mind, the fear does. And so you ask what we can do, I, I say first try to step over the fear and bring the light. And if enough people can do that, we'll start to make a change. But it's a big problem. There's a lot of things to it, and I simply don't know how it's going to turn out. All I know is I can do my little part like I'm doing now. Right. And then you've written the book, Choosing the Light, Dark Secrets of the Oklahoma City Bombing. And yeah, that was kind of yours. Go ahead. No, I, that's a th- it's um, almost 700 pages. It's 360. It's got 360 double-sided pages. It's got a lot of... Um, you know, data in it and, and uh, cooperation and pictures and all kinds of things. And if anyone needs it, I want to give out my uh, email if anyone wants uh, copies. Uh, okay, go right ahead. Take yeah, it out. Yeah, it's my Indian name. I'm part Cherokee Indian, so uh, it's my Indian name. It's Cody Golden Elk at yahoo.com. So it's Cody Golden Elk. And so... If you uh, want a copy, we have some CD copies, and uh, we're setting up a website with a PDF thing that's coming up here pretty soon. But um, it, it took about four years for me to write that book, and mm-hmm. I tell my story, but I corroborate it with, you know, like the vaccine, some of the records from uh, the Gulf War Syndrome thing, some of the hearings of the uh, the Vietnam thing with the Agent Orange, uh, all kinds of documentation about the Murrow Building and all the details uh, about all that. Um, so it's a pretty well-researched book. And, uh, I was going to say, that sounds like a lot of research. It is, How, yeah. Did, did, you, did you do this all yourself, the research, or did you have other people helping you? Well, uh, I, I did most of it myself, but I used, I relied on people like Joyce Riley. You know, she oh, was a, yeah. She, oh, wow, she's awesome. Oh, she's a wonderful person. I mean, she really cares about our veterans, you know, and, and she was one on the forefront of exposing this Gulf War Syndrome stuff. And uh, there's there's other researchers uh you know, that are in the uh, the community uh, trying to get the truth out. Um, there's, you know, there's all kinds of people like you, Rachel, in your show that are trying to step out of this lock that the mainstream media has on the information in this country. You know, you've got Google and, and uh, Twitter, Facebook, they're all censoring things now, and they're talking about this fake news stuff, and it's just a big mess. I mean, I, I see them. Oh, I know. I know. Because since I started this show in January, I've never had more computer problems. I mean, this is ridiculous what we're going through over here. It's actually, it's disheartening with my computer. But I I totally understand what you're saying about Google. Yeah, it's like when we I first uh, started going public with this, I had this book done and it's been sitting for a couple of years waiting for the right time. And uh we had an interview with uh, Ole Damagard with uh, LightOnConspiracies.com over in Spain, and we had a bunch of Skype hookups in Europe. And two, about two hours before this big thing, we were going to do it on the Kennedy. It was the 54th 
anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. That was November 22nd. Uh, and two hours before that, my computer got totally hacked. I mean, the screen flashed and all this computer code stuff came across it, and it flickered and jumped around, and it totally shut down my computer. I couldn't access Yahoo or Gmail or anything. And so they knew we were going to do that because we'd been planning it for a week or so. And they mm-hmm. just shut me mm-hmm. down to where I couldn't talk at all. Mm-hmm. And so now I, we're... I'm just going to say, I, I've lived this. I totally feel you. The woman that I'm working with to do, um, doing up a series, uh, we're trying to produce a Netflix series about my book, Security Through Absurdity. And the woman I'm working with, she and I have both had our computers scrubbed. And her, she had her phone. She's had three phones. She had Mac phones that just literally everything on it just got scrubbed really quick. And on my situation, most recent situation is my next book that's coming out. I'm almost done with it. Literally, I was going to have it done for this Christmas and it disappeared from my computer, just disappeared. I also, another file that was associated with uh, all the research that I've been doing for it, it just disappeared. I took it into the um, computer store because I was like, okay, I want to have some forensics done on this. How did this happen? I paid money, good money, almost a dollar per file that they extracted that I had erased from this computer and they told me the well they gave me a hard like an external hard drive with every single file I had ever erased on this computer and they said well it looks like your book and your file of research never existed on this computer I said how did that happen they said well you must have touched somewhere along the way something it's like a grenade and when you when it came into your computer and it touched your book and your file because it knew that it was had to do with some something you're working on on a book, it just exploded and disappeared. I was like, yeah, okay, thanks. I, that sounds very, very, <laughs> very technical. And I was like, you know, that's just crazy talk. But you know what? No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, Rachel, the same thing happened here. Uh, one of the girls we had working here at the Star Lodge, she is a uh, CPA accountant, and she's got a, a bachelor's degree in computer science. And so when they hacked our computers, um, she took three different laptops, hooked them all up, and, and she's got a degree in computer science. She spent almost nine hours trying to figure out what happened. And then she said, I've never seen anything like this. This must be some kind of government malware or something. And um, she started crying and said, I've never seen anything like this. And we threw all the computers away and just went and got new ones. But whatever they sent... If you're if you're fiddling around with the shadow government and you're trying to expose secrets and stuff like that, they can send you some whammies, you know, some stuff oh, that yeah. most most people don't even know uh, what it is. And uh, we're on our third set of computers right now. Yeah, this this laptop I have is my fourth one, my fourth yeah. Mac, my Mac Air. I'm like, you know what? And I, the reason why I got Macs is because people are like, oh, you can't hack them, not as well as you can the the PCs, and it doesn't matter, I don't think. No, no, not not when you're dealing with intelligence circles, NSACI, like the Edward Snowden stuff. Um, I got a picture of him in his book, and I've got a story about Joe Nacio with Q West in here uh, with the NSA and stuff. But um, no, when you're dealing with that high level stuff, um, they they have all the goodies, and uh, us civilians, we we can't really compete with that. There's but no it's way. almost like they're like little demons that are just playing with you. Because if they really wanted to just stop it, they just stop it. I'm nobody. I'm just a person. I'm just writing a book. I'm talking to people on the air. 
why would they even take the time? Well, they have they have old divisions like Air Force Intelligence. They have a cyber wing, and yeah. they sit around and they they read news stories and stuff that come into the United States from overseas, and they. Um, you know, their job is to downplay the articles or write counters to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a vast network of, I never really realized it until I went outside the United States and I came back into it, how deep the information control is here. You know, they said yeah. the Russians had the Iron Curtain. Well, America, believe me, I guarantee we've got the Electronic Curtain. Yeah, yeah, And back, yeah. you know, about the CIA operation, the Mockingbird, you know, back in, mm-hmm. yeah, when they were controlling the editorial stuff out of, uh, you know, they had like 400 different agents who were actually being, their fronts were being editors and journalists and so forth. The whole time they were working for the CIA. And uh, so they have this massive uh, underground shadow government network of ways to control and manipulate information, because if you can control the information at its source, okay, then then you can control the population through the manipulation of that information. And I'll give you an example. What they did over there, you know, with the ISIS thing in Syria, um, our, our guys were flying off uh, aircraft carriers, and they had a weapons ordinance to deliver, and they would call in to get a free fire, uh, and they would be denied. And then they'd have to fly back and standard procedures to d- dump the ordinance out in the ocean before you land on, on the carrier, you know, to prevent uh, accidents. Right. And uh, they were debriefed and told not to, uh, made to sign national security oaths and stuff in the pilots where they can't talk. And uh, then they would take the, the wing camera footage from Russian aircraft that actually were attacking ISIS, and then they would substitute that over to us on our news here and tell us that that was our planes destroying them when ISIS was really a creation of Obama and the State Department. Hmm. That's, oh. what, that's what happened at the embassy in Benghazi, that whole thing. I know that whole story. I was told that story by guys. Uh, they were ex-Marines, and then they were contractors for the CIA later, and they were stationed there that night when all that happened. But, yeah, that, there's so much propaganda, so much disinformation, and people like us, you know, you say you're just a nobody and you're just and that, well, so am I. But they don't, you know, one little leak in a dam can make the whole thing come down eventually if you don't plug it when it first starts. Yeah. One of the things I said when I started this show, I said, because I really didn't know where, how far and wide the show would go, um, we just started on Mixler, this little thing called Mixler. It's like a computer site. It's a website that does radio shows, I guess. And then American Freedom Radio picked us up. And then I still didn't really know how many people are listening to me. But in my head, I said, you know what? Even if this is just like a homeopathic dose of medicine, like the teeniest drop of medicine, and it gets inserted into this massive body of knowledge that's floating around the like collective unconscious, maybe this little homeopathic dose of truth would help. And that, that's my, my whole thing with this show, Shadow Citizen. I yeah. hope it does hope. I hope it does. Um, well, let's talk. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I wanted to talk say, about Star Lodge. Star okay. Lodge yeah. that you just talked about. You mentioned that, and you had told me about that. But this is where you're hanging out now. It's called Star Lodge. Um, yeah. Um, I just wanted to tell you, like, we, we've been doing these radio shows, and just today uh, we had a guy um, that called in. Uh, and he was one of the first medical responders down at the Alfred P. Murrah building, and nobody's ever heard of him. 
and we talked for almost an hour, and I said, is it okay if I take notes? And, uh, you know, uh, some people want their names used, and some people don't, of course. But um, here was a guy that was providing little tidbits of truth, uh, things that nobody knows, um, things that people are afraid to talk about. And there's a lot of them with 9-11. I mean, we could talk for hours about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but um, the, the point to this is people go, why are you doing this, Cody? It's, I, this thing was poisoning my soul. I carried it around a long time. I wanted to try to get the truth out to my American people. Um, I love my country, and uh, I I know there's a lot of really good people here in America. I know CIA agents. I know guys in the Inspector General's office at CIA. They've had dinner out here at my house. I know guys in all branches, Marines, Army, the firefighters, those poor firefighters that breathe all that asbestos. You know, at 9-11, they're all suffering now, Rachel. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them have uh, lesions in their lungs, and our, our guys are sick from Gulf War. And, and these, these shadow government people are manipulating the good American people. And there's a lot of good police officers, and there's a lot of good FBI agents. And, and we're, they're, they're being subverted and turned inside out by the, the shadow government. This, it's like a cancer. And so um, my deal is just to stand up for it and, and uh, help bring people out like this guy that called me today because the truth is out there. But a lot of people are too, uh, too afraid to speak it. Uh, like in the first part of this book, I've got a quote by Martin Luther King. It says, the day we see truth and do not speak is the day we begin to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And true. So, so yeah, so we, I, I've got a whole lot more information about the, the, the Oklahoma City bombing and the cover-up and the Tenth Circuit judicial, uh, it's just absolutely corrupt. And uh, all that's in the book. It's all covered in in the thing. But you said you wanted to talk about something else. So no, the, well, you, the the police star lodge. Yeah, that's where you are writing this book, or that's where you're doing the rehab stuff with. Yeah, yeah, it's called the Star Lodge Healing Center, and it's okay. uh, we're we're way out here in the uh, mountains in Colorado. We're like four feet up against to the national forest. This is old Ute Indian land here. And uh, I'm part Cherokee, so we do some Indian medicine. Uh, we do some angelic healings. Um, we we try to do the old laying on of hands healings and homeopathic remedies uh, mm-hmm. for veterans. Um, a lot of them, is, uh, uh, we work with the Wings of Warrior guys that get the service dogs, you know, for the veterans. And when they come back from, like, Afghanistan and Iraq, a lot of them are just all messed up, and they're giving these new drugs. The Pentagon are giving them, and they got all those weird anthrax shots. They breathe all that uranium. They're a toxic mess, and we try to use homeopathic and old way uh, natural healing things uh, to to alleviate some of the symptoms and problems. The VA, they just go in there and, and say, give them some drugs, and go next, you know, and they don't really care. I've heard so many horror stories about the VA; it's unbelievable. Yeah. But we just yeah. run a healing center here, and that's my way of doing And we never charge money. We just do you things. You don't. Where is this at now? Again, tell me where, if people need to find this, if they need this. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we're in the central part of Colorado. There is uh, about 100 miles or so south, southwest of Denver. We're almost due west of Colorado Springs, Colorado, about 50 miles. And it's uh, near uh, uh, a town called Lake George, Colorado, a little 
bitty podunk town, and then there's a, a, a reservoir, 11-mile reservoir, that's uh, one of the best trout fishing places in the state. But we look down on the lake, and we're here, um, and we use the natural earth medicine and earth remedies, uh, you know, to help uh, different people. We work on trauma victims like uh, rape, rape victims, and uh, we, we treat alcoholism and stuff with spiritual drug addiction and stuff with spiritual things rather than, uh, uh, you know, the drugs and the physical things. And we provide an alternate, you know, uh, therapy modality from the mainstream medical stuff. You know, we're not doctors or anything, and we recommend that people go to doctors for, for things, but there are spiritual causes for a lot of this stuff. And right. uh, if you get into that, uh, the spirit affects the mind, and mm-hmm. then the mind affects the body. And so if you can get all three of those things lined up together and, and functioning back normally before the trauma occurred, then um, uh, these people are restored to a more active lives. Uh, there's less chance of suicide. A lot of these veterans come back and they get suicidal. Or they get very violent through their PTSD and they, you know, they beat their wives or whatever, and then they don't know it. I mean, it's like that this thing comes over them and they react and then later on go, oh my God, what did I do? Right. And so what we try to do is provide alternate modalities. And I did a talk at the VFW Post 11411 for the veterans up there. And we just try to help the best way we can. Uh, with the old ways uh, instead of all the drugs. Mm-hmm. Is there a website or anything? Because the, they just pick up a phone or just go out there to Lake George, Colorado and say, I want the Star Lodge Healing Center? Yeah, yeah. No, we, we, uh, we, we network with a community of healers, uh, you know, Reiki and massage therapists and so forth in the area. We do aromatherapy. Mm-hmm. One of the guys that works here is a certified raindrop aromatherapy guy where he uses all the uh, essential oils and mm-hmm. helps people through that way. And so um, we... Uh, and it works. It works, right? It, like, it, wor- it works for some people. That's why we mm-hmm. say a lot of people don't know about the Indian medicine. You know, they used to have old warriors, and they had to heal them and do things back then. And I've, been, I've trained under some of these medicine people. And uh, so we, we present these things. A lot of the veterans have never seen any of it. And some of them we do this stuff too, and they they go, "This is great." I mean, I'm not going to go back to VA, and other people say, "No, nah, it didn't work for me." So mm-hmm. it, we just mm-hmm. provide an alternate modality of spiritual things because the VA really doesn't um, address that. They just address physical causes, and they give everyone a bunch of dope, and then kick them out the door. Right. Yep. So we're wow. we're getting a we're getting a website put up now, but. Um, we we have people come here from all over the country. Just in the next week, we got people coming from Florida, Indiana, Ohio, um, and and we do high level spiritual uh, work, and so um, it helps some, and others don't. And there's plenty of other therapies out there they can go to. You know, right, right, right. Um, how many people work at this place? Cody. Well, it depends. It's seasonal. You know, in the winter, like it is now, it's it's really cut down. But in the summer, we can have anywhere from five to ten to fifteen different people uh, that are, that help work. And um, so it depends on the caseload. And like I said, everything's real seasonal. In the winter, everything just shuts down around here because the snow drifts get three feet deep, and we're at nine thousand feet in the mountains. So it the weather really it gets twenty below zero some morning. So <laughs> right. Wow. So from from the day that Harold Leonard came to you and said, would you bomb the Murrow building, 
to now, you've really made quite the change, Cody Gold, Golden Elk. Yes, this is ma'am. pretty cool. This is amazing. So you've got this book, this magnum opus that you're working on. It's almost done, or people could get it from you if they email you. Right. Or your uh, gold, Elk at yahoo.com. Right. Um, are you charging for that book? Yeah, we charge for it. Um, what we're doing, we sell the CDs for twenty bucks a piece, and we pay okay. the ship. We pay the shipping on it. Okay. Uh, except if it's international, we've had a a number of people from overseas that want it. We have to add like fifteen bucks for international. But uh, any day now, we're we're having a, the website is being worked on right now, and we're putting the book up there on a PDF so that um, people can bypass the shipping because. You know, if you send it to Australia or something, you can bypass all that, right? Through the PDF. Well, so yeah, so we're this we're getting is so that up. Great. Good, and, good, uh, good. We also so, give it we give it to veterans for free if they're, uh, you know, a lot of disabled veterans. They're living on pensions and nice. they get thirty percent disability checks from the VA, and then, then their Social Security and they barely make it month to month. And, well, and so all we, right. Well, thank you, Cody Golden Golden Elk. Snod, Snodgrass. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a great interview. And everybody, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>